We'll hear argument now on number 006374, Dale Becker v. Betty Montgomery. Uh, Mr. Sutton. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. There are two arguments that I would like to press this morning. The first is that a timely notice of appeal may never be dismissed for lack of jurisdiction solely because it lacks a signature. The second is an alternative argument, and that's that a typewritten signature would suffice to meet any such requirement. Now, let me start with the Sixth Circuit's view of this particular case. In their view, there is a jurisdictional signature requirement in light of the 30-day rule under Appellate Rule 4 and in light of Civil Rule 11, which indeed does contain a signature requirement. The problem with the Sixth Circuit's reliance on Civil Rule 11 is that it not only contains a signature requirement, but it also contains a remedy for the absence of a signature. And in this particular case, everyone agrees, the Court appointed amicus curiae included, that Mr. Becker was never given an opportunity to correct this omission of a signature, whether at the District Court or the Court of Appeals level. I, 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 sh- I should know this. Um, when you file the Notice of Appeal, do you file it with the District Court? You do, Your Honor. So Rule 11 applies at that point? It, it, it does, technically. Uh, in fact, Appellate Rule 1 arguably acknowledges that when it says all filings in a district court, all filings in the courts of appeals that have to be made through district courts have to comply with district court rules. So it does seem, as odd as it would appear, that Civil Rule 11 does apply to a notice of appeal, keeping in mind that Civil Rule 11 is pretty broad in nature. It says all pleadings and, quote, other papers. So arguably that does include a notice of appeal. If, if, if I were on the Court of Appeals and I thought that Rule 11 requires a, a signature. Handwritten signature. Um, and, and I was a little fussy about it, what, what would I do just uh, under Rule 11? Just say, will you please cure this uh, non-jurisdictional deficiency well, under it, your it view? Is, or? Yeah, it is problematic, Your Honor, and I think the answer is Appellate Rule 1, which does, as I noted, make clear that you do have to comply with the district court rules and the rules of civil procedure. In light of Appellate Rule 1, a Court of Appeals or a Court of Appeals Clerk's Office would be fully within its rights to contact, in this case, Mr. Becker, saying, Mr. Becker, we see you've typed your signature. In this circuit, we prefer a handwritten pen and ink signature. Please and clean up your act. Okay. Well, but well clean, clean it up within 30 days. I mean, that, that, that's the problem. You do have a remedy, but why doesn't the remedy have to have been uh, uh, applied within the 30-day time limit? Well, Your Honor, the only thing that has to be done within 30 days is to make sure you've established an intent to appeal. And you can establish an intent to appeal as this Court has made. Say that. It says you have to establish an intent to appeal within 30 days? I thought it said that you had to file within 30 days a notice of appeal which includes a signature, which I take to mean a written signature in in normal parts. Well, as this Court has construed Rule 4 and, and Rule 3 of the appellate rules in Smith and Torres, it is said the touchstone for jurisdiction is to establish the intent to appeal within 30 days. That's well, an I, don't, I don't know how good law Smith is. You don't know how good law Smith is? Yeah, there the, were a couple cases decided back in the 1960s really stretched the language, I think. Well, I may be referring to the wrong Smith decision. I'm referring to Smith versus Berry, Your Honor, which is a 9-0 decision in which the Court said that a merits brief would suffice to establish or could suffice to establish intent to appeal within 30 days. That was the case in which the appellant missed the time for filing the notice of appeal because they weren't sure when the — they hadn't — weren't sure when the notice — the judgment was entered. 
They then fortuitously filed their merits brief within the 30-day period, and this Court said in a 9-0 decision that that I, I, I do think there are some older cases that aren't necessarily reflecting the current rules, but — Mr. Sutton, can we go back to your answer to Justice Kennedy about Route 11? Isn't the answer on the other side that once you file the notice of appeal, authority over the case passes from the district court to the court of appeals? So at that point, up until the notice of appeal, you're in the district court. Once you file that notice, you're in the court of appeals, and Rule 11 is a rule directed to the district court and not the court of appeals. So the cure that Rule 11 provides, at least so the argument goes, would not be available in the court of appeals. And, and Your Honor, that's why I was relying on Appellate Rule 1, which incorporates those rules. And that would, therefore, give appellate courts authority to make sure that someone did correct a signature. And if they wanted at that point to decide, well, if you're not going to correct it, you're going to be unrepentant when it comes to this particular requirement, at that point we are going to dismiss your appeal and, in fact, could do so on the merits. Of course, I suppose if you haven't filed a proper notice of appeal, you're still in the district court. I mean, you could argue it the other way, that, that if indeed a signature is required and you file it without a signature in the court of appeals, it's ineffective, and so the case remains in the district court. Uh, what, the, what the Court has said and what the rules reflect is that as soon as the district court clerk receives the notice of appeal, doesn't say anything about validity, it's immediately sent to the Court of Appeals. And, and I think, but I think that does raise a second answer to Mr. Baker's argument, the point Justice Ginsburg is getting at. It is true that the filing of the notice of appeal immediately vests jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals over the merits of the case. But that doesn't preclude district courts from acting on collateral matters. That's why they can act on stay motions, bond motions, attorney fee motions. This arguably could be such a collateral act. It wouldn't go to the merits of the case. It would, however, I mean, I think there would be one problem here, and that, in, that would be the interpretation that district courts would have authority to enforce this as a jurisdictional rule, and you'd have district court judges dismissing appeals of their own cases. Uh, that seems problematic, and I, and I don't Mr. think that would be a correct Mr. Sutton, um, the federal rule of appellate procedure, three, does say that um, a pro se notice of appeal is considered filed on behalf of the signer. Yes. Which gives some indication that a signature is expected. Uh, yes, Justice O'Connor. And if I could answer this question, I'm, it may be helpful to be looking at the, the rules. I'm looking at uh, the State of Ohio's red brief. I'm at 5A, where they've got a helpful collection of, I think, the pertinent rules. What page? 5A. Of the, Five. I'm at the appendix, so it's yeah. very bad. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and Justice O'Connor correctly is pointing to what I, I think is uh, the best argument that has been made, the amicus curiae argument, and that's Appellate Rule 3C2, which does refer to the word signer. I mean, this does come out of nowhere. There's nothing else in the appellate rules right. that refers to the verbs right. sign or the noun signer or signature, and suddenly in 1993 they do this. Well, I guess one quick question is, if Mr. Baker's interpretation is correct, how in the world would you enforce it? Put yourself in the position of the, the poor clerk of, let's say, the Sixth Circuit. They get, let's say, Mr. Becker's notice of appeal, but instead of a typewritten signature, it just says, Becker in the caption, Becker in the body, blank, we'll assume for the sake of argument, signature line. How would you know whether the person was represented or not? You would have no way of knowing whether the attorney, you don't have to sign rule, or the pro se, you do have to sign rule, applies. Indeed, the only way to enforce it would have the 
clerk do what I think they should be doing in these cases, which is picking up the phone and calling and saying, do you mean to be signing? Do you mean to include that appellant? Of course, if the question under Mr. Baker's rule was the clerk now calls and says, are you represented? Well, there's a good answer and a bad answer to that question. If you say you're represented, you're okay. Jurisdiction vested, you didn't have to sign. And if you say you're pro se, you're gone. So it's a, I can't imagine that's what they meant, given that particular problem. The other problem with it, there are, there are actually a few, is if you turn the page to 6A and look at Rule 3C4. Let me just interrupt you for a second with that first hypothetical. You're assuming that he calls the person up and he says he, says he is represented, that then everything's okay. Because Mr. Baker, and I think as he has to but, say, but this is no too. lawyer signed anything. You're assuming that there would be appeals in which the lawyer signed them without, uh, filed them without ever signing anything. Exactly, which does happen. Some of the lower court cases are cases where even the attorney didn't sign. In other words, you don't have to be a pro se litigant to make a mistake. I mean, there are many of the lower court cases involve non pro se situations. You've got a caption, notice of appeal, no signature at all. And your position is if there's an unsigned notice of appeal, it vests jurisdiction if the man has a lawyer, but it does not if the man does not have a lawyer. I mean, that's, that's, Mr. That's, Baker's, that's, that's Mr. Baker's — that's Mr. Baker's — that's, excuse me, not his position. That's a consequence of his, his position, in, in my view. And I'm making the point I can't imagine doing that. I mean, that's utterly bizarre. But I think it's confirmed, this, the reading — But maybe the answer is that there shouldn't be jurisdiction in either case. If nobody signed anything. Well, that, that may be the right, the best policy, but there's nothing that supports that view. There's no, there's nothing in the appellate rules that says as to uh, individuals represented by counsel they must sign. That requirement doesn't exist anywhere. So that we would be making up after the fact right now just for Dale Becker's case. Well, while you're on that, I know you want to read number four, which says if you make a mistake, it's a stupid mistake, it doesn't count. And, and, and 3A2 while we're at it. I realize. Yes. yes. All right. That says that on the top of page 6A. Exactly. But I, but I, but I did have a question directly. Justice Breyer, can I just add one? Yes. You're doing a very good job for me, but I just want to add this point. The clause you were relying, you were pointing out, was added in 1993. In other words, it was added at the same time Appellate Rule 3C2 was added. These were all post-Torres amendments liberalizing, making it easier to indicate an intent to appeal. I'm sorry. But I, did I mean, just while you're on the jurisdictional mysticism of, you know, whether it dissolves <laughs> or where the jurisdiction is, as I read this, and tell me if this is correct or not, whether it supports you or not, I want to know if it's right. Uh, as I read it, that if, you f- if, if your notice complies with all the conditions of Rule 4, it's valid. Now, nowhere in that does it say you actually have to sign. So suppose you don't sign. It's still valid. Right. It still does everything a thing does, but under Rule 11, if you didn't sign it, it could be stricken. It doesn't say it wasn't valid. It says specifically what you do. You fail to sign it, therefore the valid notice would be stricken if somebody discovers it wasn't signed. But before you strike it, you give a person a chance to sign it. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So all this jurisdictional stuff is beside the point. Because the, the rules are fairly clear that there, it's just, even if it isn't signed, it acts just like it was signed. Exactly. But it's subject to being stricken. In, in the first respect, in that respect, you've made the but argument that I could. Go back, that's right. That's right. Mr. Sutton, we go back to the problem that you and I discussed before in relation to Justice Breyer's question, the argument that Rule 11 is out of it once you file the Notice of Appeals, authority passes to the Court of Appeals, therefore, the part of Rule 11 that says you can cure it 
is no longer operative because that rule is directed to district courts and not court of appeals. And At least that's the argument. And Why? you're in this, you know, metaphysical netherworld where you can never correct and you can never appeal. But in the real world, I'm wondering how this mistake, who caught it? Because there was already a briefing schedule when this turned up. Who found that the notice of appeal hadn't been signed? I, I have no idea. I mean, the, the, before this, before Mr. Becker's case, the Sixth Circuit had a general rule that they'd applied only in multiple appellant pro se cases where the absence of quota signature created this jurisdictional defect, and that's they dismissed the appellants who had not signed. And I assume what happened, but again, I'm assuming. I have no idea what happened. I, all I know is it took seven months for the appeal to be dismissed. So that leads me to believe this went to the section of the Sixth Circuit that handles those types of appeals. Someone, at least partly correctly, realized their Mattingly rule, saw that you had the typewritten signature, and I guess in an act of, you know, precision, uh, at least in their view, thought that didn't count. But, but didn't give Mr. Becker an opportunity to argue otherwise that, you know, his typewritten signature would suffice, or for that matter to make the point, you should never apply this multiple party rule in the context of a single appellant who's put his name on the notice of appeal three times. Mr. Sutton. Oh, excuse me. The, the, you, you mentioned the multiple um, appellants, and that was the problem uh, of, a, of one person filing a notice of appeal, putting down a lot of other names, and you didn't know whether the other names really wanted to appeal. How is that situation handled today? Well, the, and you've got, this is the division there really exi- that did exist in the lower courts. There was not a division on the single appellant problem. They've all ruled our way. But in the lower courts, you've got some, like the Seventh Circuit is an example, that says it's non-jurisdictional. And they say they just simply ask someone to correct it and clarify whether all three appellants meant to appeal, even though only one of them hand-signed the notice. And others say, no, that's jurisdictional. They look at this Court's decision in Torres and say, you've got to establish within the four corners of the document, within 30 days, a, quote, intent to appeal. I think the Seventh Circuit view is the better view. I mean, this is a minimalistic requirement. In fact, it all comes from a statute. It does — the rules aren't allowed under Rule 1 to expand or shrink the Courts of Appeals jurisdictions. The only statutory requirement is 28 U.S.C. 2107, and that says — just get your intent. Just file the notice of appeal within 30 days. And if you've you're suggesting that um, the rules could not put conditions uh, on what you have to do to file a notice of appeal, they other, other than the statute, not jurisdictional ones, Your Honor. Why is that? What is, what's the authority for that? The Rules Enabling Act. The Rules Enabling Act says that you can only create these rules for the purpose of, of applying, implementing these court decisions in the administration of the lower courts. It doesn't allow this court or the lower courts or advisory committees to create rules that expand or shrink this court's jurisdiction. Let me give you an example. That doesn't shrink the jurisdiction. I mean, you mean a court would have, must under the statute, accept a notice of appeal that, 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 that consists of somebody coming in and singing it? It's not even in writing? I mean, surely, surely the statute envisions that the court is going to set forth the procedures for effecting a notice of appeal. Well, the, the, there's no doubt you can set up procedures and you can set up consequences for failing to follow those procedures. That's not this case. This is a case about the jurisdiction of the Court of Appeals. And I, I'm not sure I really want to answer your question or some others going down that road because I get a lot of angry mail from Court of Appeals clerks. But I don't know why 
you can do that. Let me give you an example in response to Mr. Chief Justice's question. I mean, I don't know why. In Rule 3, this Court can't promulgate rules that are then ultimately approved by Congress that say, or silently approved by Congress, that says in order to have jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals, you must have your facsimile number on the Notice of Appeals. How, where do they have authority to shrink the jurisdiction of the Court of Appeals? They could say, you need to put your facsimile number on the Notice of Appeals as a rule, and then enforce that rule however, however they wish. Well, how, how about the simple problem? Does the statute say it has, has to be in writing? <clears throat> um, it, it, in, no, no, it doesn't. Well, then, well, how? <laughs> you, but you have to convey your notice. Answer the implied question from Justice Quinn. Can a, can a court say the notice of appeal must be in writing and uh, have it jurisdictional? I, I, I think is, is, that probably is not a problem. I mean, I, I think all you've got to do is establish an intent to appeal within 30 days, and it would seem the assumption there is that it is in writing, and I'm sure that's what Congress assumed. I'm sure they didn't. I'm, I'm interested in this statute. Now, what is that statute? <laughs> 28 U.S.C. 2107. 2107. That's the 30-day. It's in the back of our brief, the blue brief. Um, if I could turn... Uh, to this, this, the quote signature requirement, was it, which is an alternative issue here, um, and is, I think everyone knows if you look at JA 12, that is Mr. Becker's notice of appeal, and you'll see it's got his name in three places, including on the quote signature line, where he typed rather than hand wrote his signature. And the question is whether the appellate civil rules or any other rules somehow require a pen and ink signature. There's no definition of the verb sign or the noun signature or signer anywhere in the rules, so that's not of much help. The dictionary definitions circa 1938 or even 1993 are equivocal. They go both directions, so that's not of much help. And you've got the very real problem, not in Mr. Becker's case, but surely in the case of some appellants, that some individuals may well not be able to, quote, pen and ink a a notice of appeal. You could imagine someone with a disability that could only type a notice of appeal, you could imagine an individual in a maximum security prison, a pro se appellant who uh, the, that particular warden doesn't allow the inmates to have. Mr. Sutton, do you think if somebody said, would you please sign this check and I type my name on it, that I would have signed it? Uh, well, it, some of our cases actually are banknote cases, Your Honor, but I do think the answer to your question is most people would pen and ink it. I, I agree with you. And, but that's also why most banks have on hand a copy of each client's signature. We don't do that well, is, in the courts of is, appeals. Is pen and ink it a term you have coined for this case? Uh, that's a fair criticism, Your Honor. Uh, I, I have. And, uh, but I think although, although you do say that the bank keeps a record of each client's signature, it's, it's, by which you mean pen and ink, right? Yeah, I, I, do, I do mean pen and ink. Uh, I think everyone ought to have some liberty to coin phrases here, since there are no definitions at all, and I, I think the advocates are stuck a little bit for that reason. But there doesn't seem, I mean, form follows function here. There's no reason when it comes to a notice of appeal why it has to be in pen and ink. Uh, the point is to establish an intent to appeal. It's a minimal threshold. At that point, any doubt about who's involved and who's not can be readily clarified by either the that, court. That the argument that you could just type it in runs into the problem with multiple parties again. The one appellant can just type in the names of a lot of people who don't want to appeal. But that, that is true. But, Your Honor, that's assuming that pro se appellants and pro se appellants only are more likely to commit fraud. I don't think that's a fair assumption. I mean, the notion of an imposter appellant. Well, I'm not do- saying anything about pro se. Just someone types in 
his own name and two other names of people who are parties in in the district court, but who haven't signed it. No, and my, my point is the only reason to require a pen and ink signature requirement is because you're fearful that the individual that did the typing is somehow misleading the court and pulling a fast one on his or her co-appellants. That is not confirming they do indeed want to appeal. I think it's a fair assumption when you see in the body of the notice of appeal all three parties listed, and for that, or for that matter in the caption, as the rule allows, that's enough. I mean, I don't care whether it has one signature or no signatures. You've conveyed an intent to appeal. Mr. And Sutton, what about filing by email? Do you think that would be okay? Well, that's, it's, it's an interesting point. We, we, we do have a situation where some district courts are allowing email-type signatures. On and notices of appeal? Well, they're allow- I don't know whether the Northern District of Ohio is doing that. I know they're doing that generally when it comes to cases in their courts, and I think that You don't rule- have to allow it. You're, you're telling us they have no power to forbid it. And, and less Congress says otherwise. I mean, that's your position under the statute, isn't it? Your Honor, of all people, this, I mean, we've got a separation of powers problem here. Congress says there, there is a 30-day requirement in the statute, and that's all it says. And suddenly the courts are allowed to decide who to push out and who to include in? But the Congress has used the word notice of appeal. And a notice of appeal, the understanding has been, means a document that says notice of appeal and I hereby, and then it has a signature, which you sign or counsel signs. And I think that is the best argument when it comes to interpreting the congressional statute, that, in other words, the notice of appeal does come with certain assumptions. There's nowhere, though, that that assumption has to include the handwritten signature. That's, there's no assumption on that. I, certainly. And based on the law or the cases. Mr. Sutton, you, you, you reach an interesting conclusion if you put together the first and the second parts of your argument. In, in the first part, you assumed that, that a signature meant a written signature. And you said, well, you know, if it isn't written, but so long as your name's there, that's good enough, it's properly filed. In the second part of your argument, you're now assuming that signature just means a typewritten signature. So I, I assume it would follow that if you left that out, it would also be properly filed. So I could file a sheet of paper with no name on it, and I filed a proper appeal. Your Honor, I think not, I, not even a typewritten name, because in the first part of your argument, you say you don't need the signature. So if I apply that to your second part of the argument, we have appeals. We don't know who's appealed. We know somebody's filed a notice of appeal, but... But, but your, your Honor, I don't... I, I'm not sure... I'm, first of all, I'm not entirely sure I understood the way you characterized the first part of my argument. So let me tell you how I have been trying to argue, which is that you don't need anything. That is my point. The first argument is you don't need typewritten, handwritten, in X, anything. Not even a name. Yes, you do need a name. Why do you need a name? Look it's at, only the signature requirement look at 12, says you need the name. Look at 12A. Look at 12A, which is the joint, uh, the joint appendix. And this is the sample notice of appeal that Mr. Becker got from the Sixth Circuit and he used. And this is what most notice of appeals look like. They're one page. What you do have to do is within 30 days convey an intent to appeal. You can do that without any signature at all. You can do that with your name in the caption. That's, in fact, Rule 3 says that. You can you're, you're saying intent includes who, who intends. That's your answer to his question. Exactly. But yeah. what if you have a multi-party case uh, and no, no signature at all on the appeal? That doesn't tell you who's, who's appealing. Sure it does, Your Honor. If in the, it says notice is hereby given that blank, and it says Dale G. Becker, John Smith, and John Moore, then you've got a, a, a blank signature line. But the court's well, made up those forms, no? I mean, the, 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 you, you say that... The, you know, um, 
you could draft your own form, right? Uh, uh, under the statute. Absolutely. And we're exceeding, we're destroying the separation of powers if, if, if we, if we stick to that form. The, Your Honor, I am not saying the forms are jurisdictional. I'm using the forms to try to visualize the issue. I'm not, I'm not making any concession there jurisdictional. I'm just trying to help us visualize it. And you were suggesting you've got the poor clerk at the Sixth Circuit gets a notice of appeal with no signature and they don't know what to do. That's just not true. Whether it's one appellant or 55 appellants, if in the body of the notice of appeal or the caption, as the rules say, the appellants are all listed, how can there possibly be any jurisdictional doubt as to who is trying to appeal? There's no doubt. Except that uh, when you sign something, you give your own individual imprimatur to what's said in the text that you're signing. And to simply have your name incorporated in a text that you have indicated no approval of, I think, falls short. But, but Your Honor, the, uh, yeah, that, that's one possibility, and your suggestion is that when they don't sign, they somehow decided at the last second, I'm not, I'm willing to put my name well, in the for body. For all of I know, me. they've never seen it. That's, that's possible, Your Honor, but that goes back to the, my response to Justice Ginsburg. Somehow the assumption that there's someone committing fraud or there are imposter well, appellants out there, that's not a problem well, that is, exists. But cer- certainly, if, if, you're, if you're not judgment-proof, you don't lightly undertake an appeal because you can be assessed for costs if you lose it. But if you are just judgment-proof, presumably there's, there's no real harm. You're not going to suffer anything if, if, you, if you do appeal. Your Honor, the reason th- this lenity exists is not because people decide, oh, boy, I'm having doubts at the last second whether to put my signature here. It's because they make mistakes. And people make them all the time. God knows, I mean, I can't think of a lawyer that hasn't made this kind of mistake. It gets filed without the signature, and that's isn't exactly that, isn't that is, I mean, you, you have gone, I think, a lot farther than you need to go. All you need to do is to say the signature is curable. After the 30 days, right? Absolutely. And th- that's what Rule 3C4 means, exactly. So any doubt about this problem can be resolved after the 30-day window, which is the jurisdictional window. If I could save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Sutton. Mr. Baker, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. Uh, I'd like to just correct uh, one point that uh, uh, petitioner's attorney made. Uh, the Sixth Circuit has applied their jurisdictional rule uh, excluding unsigned uh, notice of appeal to single appellants. They've done so in, in numerous unpublished opinions. Uh, the fact that they're unpublished, I think, suggests that they don't believe that there's any difference uh, between single or multiple appellants and that that uh, distinction has been introduced by petitioner's attorney at this stage and at this stage only. Um, but, Mr. Barker, are there not courts where something like this would come into the clerk's office, the signature is lacking, the clerk would say, well, it, it was filed within the 90 days, so going to send it back with a letter, very much as this court does. When something is filed in this court, a cert petition and is deficient, but if it's on time, our clerk will send it back for the deficiency to be cured. Yet yeah, the... Uh, uh, the difficulty with that is that uh, uh, Rule 4 sets a 30-day limit on filing a proper notice of appeal, and therefore, if you can correct it within the 30 days, there's not a problem. But if you can't correct it within the 30 days, there's a jurisdictional issue that arises. Uh, uh, it arises uh, — Well, why should that be so if the intent to appeal is clear from the face of what was filed? Uh, we have spoken, I guess, in the Taurus case, that the touchstone is the clear intent to appeal. And if the document is clear, 
as it was in this case, who the appellant is, and that it was timely filed, and so on, why should that be jurisdictional and not correctable later? The signature requirement is part of expressing the intent of the party to appeal. It's uh, since 1980, the Courts of Appeals have said that specify the party or party taking the appeal includes, in a pro se context, the signature of the party who intends to take the appeal. Even but in a There's no clear uh, statutory or uh, rule requirement that it be signed. I think that uh, Rule 11 clearly requires that it be signed. Uh, Rule 11 is incorporated, at least as far as the form of the filing, into the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure. And then Rule 3C clearly references an expectation that there will be a signer in every pro se uh, notice of appeal. There Uh, is, there is, but Rule 11 says you have to sign it. So if it's not signed, here's what we do. We strike it. But before we strike it, we give the person a chance to sign it. That's what it says. It says it shall be struck uh, unless it's been cured after notice, uh, which I think is a slightly more emphatic statement than. It's all right, fine. It says we really, really, really will strike it unless you sign it. Now, <laughs> I think that, that it's, but I, I think it's hard given that to say that, you know, go through this jurisdictional thing or anything. I, I take it the problem here is he wasn't given a chance to sign it. Well, the, the difficulty uh, with taking that approach is first that uh, Rule 11 is a district court rule. Uh, it sets form requirements and it tells the uh, uh, court what it can do in response to an unsigned notice of appeal. Uh, a portion of that comes to the uh, federal rules of appellate procedure, but simply the form requirements, not the authority to take action. It, it, it would be very why. I mean, why do you draw that line? Uh, if, if the one is incorporated, why isn't the other? Well, the. Uh, uh, Legislative uh, history for that uh, says that, uh, in some instances, the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure provide that a motion must or may be filed in the district court. I'm reading from our footnote on page 17 in the Green Brief. Uh, uh, And then it goes on to say, the proposed amendment would make it clear that when this is so, the motion or application is to be made in the form and manner prescribed by the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. In other words, it says if there's a form and manner requirement, you must meet it in the district court. I think it would be unusual for the uh, Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure to say, uh, and by the way, you can borrow whatever authority the district court may have. Well, isn't it, isn't it authority that goes to the satisfaction of a form and manner requirement? Sure it is. Well, it says, it, it, uh, but the requirement is that it be signed. I think yeah. the requirement is not that it be signed if you've gotten a notice uh, uh, from the court. It simply says it must be signed, it shall be stricken unless certain things have happened. Those it, things it says it must be signed, and if it isn't signed, you have to sign it if you get a notice from the court. And if you don't do that, we strike it. That's what it If If we were only borrowing Rule 11, here, I think this argument would be much stronger, but, but we've, uh, the, the advisory committee has gone over this territory already. The courts of appeals, as I said, since 1980 have found that the, the jurisdictional language of Rule 3 includes a signature requirement, not all of them, but uh, uh, the Fourth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and others. Uh, and the advisory committee, which addressed this question after Torres made it quite clear that specify the parties is a jurisdictional requirement had in front of them language that would have gotten rid of the signature requirement and instead 
modified that language to make it clear that a signature was expected from every pro se party filing a notice of appeal. Uh, I think that's, but that's, that's not really not clear. I mean, the one thing that that change does is to say that the widow or the wife and the child can come along without signing it. I mean, we know that when they made that change in Rule 3, what they wanted to do is to enable people to be parties who hadn't signed and then to say, well, now that instituted for the first time a, a statement in the rules that the pro se litigant must sign. It's kind of a back doorway to create a signing requirement. It, it, it's obviously not perfect, uh, uh, Your Honor. Uh, on the other hand, I have difficulty reading it as only saying there's a signature requirement for the uh, spouse and children, which would be the result of saying, well, this, this says there's a signature requirement for the spouse and child, but it's met by the signature of the pro se party. Uh, I'm not sure that produces a more sensible rule than one that says it, it treats the, the pro se party and the pro se party's family members all the same. They Maybe are it had in mind Tories in the problem of the person other than the one who files the notice adding names. So that I think that the that that problem of the multi-party of appeal is what. Prompted, prompted the change in the rule. I, I think that's that that's plausible if it were not for the fact that the advisory committee had in front of it language that would have achieved that without introducing a signature requirement or any notion of a signature requirement provided by public citizen. The, the language provided by public citizen would have clearly undone the signature requirements that had been imposed by some of the courts of appeals. Maybe they thought the signature requirement was there but non-jurisdictional. I mean, take a look at Rule 1. It says, when these rules provide for filing a document in the district court, the procedure must comply with the practice of the district court. So it seems to me that if you follow FRAP Rule 1A2, then you pick up all of Rule 11 and not just a piece of it. That may well be, uh, but I think that uh, it's, it's impossible to pick up FRAP rule, uh, the, the, the civil rule of procedure, without taking into account Rule 4, which says the notice of appeal has to be filed within 30 days. Uh, there's clearly a signature requirement under Rule 11. There's but no doubt about that. But why doesn't that mean that defects can be cured after the 30 days, just as it does in this court? I, I think the reason that it can't be is that uh, the Signature requirement has been pulled into Rule 3 for pro se parties by the direct reference to an expectation that the pro se party will sign the notice of appeal. That it's, uh, it, it's hard to read that language without coming to the conclusion that there is something about the notice of appeal and the standards for notice of appeal that is, that requires a signature from pro se parties. And there are, there are good, obviously, policy reasons for wanting to do that. Uh, so then you are making the distinction that, that Mr. Sutton suggested you were, that this is a requirement, this signing requirement, this jurisdictional signing requirement applies only to pro se litigants and not to litigants with counsel. Yeah, I think that the principal problem that uh, 
the uh, uh, signature requirement addresses is the risk that someone is practicing law, probably without a license, uh, on behalf of a party who may or may not understand what's being done in his name. And the signature requirement uh, allows the Court to be sure that the party who is nominally appearing pro se, in fact, has had a chance to think about what he is doing and to examine the contents of what's been filed in his name. That's the uh, reason that in multiple appellant cases this rule has been applied without controversy uh, uh, because it's obvious there that one party may be proceeding to draft uh, uh, pleadings that the others may not have seen. Uh, but in the context of single appellants as well, there are numerous areas of law where uh, uh, there is an active cottage industry of assisting pro se uh, uh, litigants, uh, uh, not just prison cases, but bankruptcy cases, immigration cases, where people uh, who hold themselves out as grievance consultants or other forms of quasi-lawyer have uh, taken to filing pro se papers on behalf of parties. The signature requirement at least requires that those pro se parties have a chance to see what's been done in their name. But you agree that it's, that it's not jurisdictional with regard to, uh, to an attorney? I, I, I do agree that. I think that if one reads this as narrowly as possible, that uh, uh, the signature requirement does not ap- apply to represented parties. It, it applies the, the, the attorney. It's a jurisdictional. Uh, right. And, 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 and there are reasons for that. Uh, uh, if an attorney says, I represent these parties and they're taking the appeal, and he's not telling the truth, he's subject to a wide variety of sanctions that would not apply to a non-lawyer who made that same representation. And therefore, it's a, it's a plausible uh, uh, distinction to, to draw. Uh, Mr. Baker, one of the problems, since we're dealing with pro se litigant, gets this form from the Sixth Circuit. And it doesn't say, as the, the sample attached to the rules do, S with a signature. So there's, he gets a document from a court that doesn't even warn him that a signature is required. And then he's out the door yeah. because he, he did everything that the, that the document he got from the court called for. I, 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 I think that's a difficulty I, I would suggest I don't know how Mr. Becker got that form. I, I think it would be useful to take a look at uh, the yellow brief, pages A2 and A3, because, in fact, the form that Mr. Becker got is outdated even by the Sixth Circuit standards. If you go to the Sixth Circuit website, you go to the notices and download the forms, the form you will get is the form on page A3 of the yellow brief, not on page A2, which is the form that Mr. Becker Submitted. Indeed, if you look at the uh, at, at the lower left-hand corner of each of those documents, you'll see that uh, uh, each of them is labeled six CA three, which is the name of the, the number of the form. Each of them, in fact, in the original uh, has a GPO designation. But a, the, the, the notice on page A three is dated January ninety nine as opposed to August of seventy nine. Um, and this is the, the page, the, the, the form on page A3 is the form that is available to litigants and that should be sent out, and it certainly calls for a signature, has the little S. So there may well have been a mistake here uh, in Mr. Becker's case, but I think it would be going beyond uh, the facts that we have in the record to assume that uh, this is a policy on the part of the Sixth Circuit to send out a uh, notice of appeal. Well, the whole problem is that he wasn't given an opportunity. The, the Sixth Circuit said, 
30 days are up, no signature, that's it, nothing else is relevant. Mr. Becker's filed nearly 20 cases in the federal and state courts in Ohio. He has signed practically every paper he's filed in practically every one of those cases, including all of his notices of appeal to the Sixth Circuit in past cases. Uh, Rule 11 says sign everything you file in the district court. Uh, I I think it would be uh, aggressive for him to suggest that simply because the S was missing from this form, uh, he doesn't have to pay any attention to those uh, those rules. Well, again, it's not a question of not paying attention. It's a question of whether it can be cured, whether we know that the 30 days can't be cured once that runs, but the, the, the question is whether something like a signature shouldn't be curable. When everything is there, his name is, is in the caption, his name is in the body of the notice. But when one has a, when is, when is confronted with a notice of appeal, as is the typical case, I mean, here we've had half a dozen substantive motions and briefs, and so we're starting to get a feel for Mr. Becker and what his intent was. But uh, the purpose of the requirement is to know immediately and in a way that's not easily deniable by the uh, appellant what his intent is, that he actually intends to file this appeal and be bound by the consequences, even if they're bad, uh, as they may well be for uh, a frivolous appeal. Uh, if I could touch briefly on the question whether the Rules Enabling Act uh, uh, prevents uh, the application of this rule. I, I think it's answered by the Torres case, uh, which said, after all, that uh, uh, even though it was perfectly obvious in that case that uh, uh, all of the plaintiffs who had lost intended to seek the appeal, the fact that one of the plaintiffs' names had been left off of the document meant there was no notice of appeal as to him and that the, the requirement that the parties be specified was a jurisdictional requirement. Uh, I, I don't think the Rules Enabling Act said, wait a minute, you're, you're narrowing the scope of the notice of appeal. But program. there was a total absence of the name anyplace. And I think, I, if I understand you right, Mr. Baker, you were asking us to equate the lack of a signature with the total absence of the name of the would-be appellant anyplace in the yes, notice. Yes, I, I am, because that... Uh, um, was the position since at least 1980 of some of the Courts of Appeals and a position that we believe was adopted by the Advisory Committee in 1993. It is one thing to say, look, you you weren't even named any place in this notice within the 30 days, so we're not going to let you. You can't become an appellant after. As opposed to, yes, you're named in the caption, yes, you're named in the body, all that's lacking is a signature, that we can let you do after the 30 days. Yeah, of course, uh, one could draw the distinction. I'm not sure that the Rules Enabling Act would say that uh, that, that distinction is, uh, is, is, is the uh, limit of what the Court's authority is. Uh, I think the Court has the authority to say, uh, we want you to specify the party, uh, the party taking the appeal in a manner that leaves the party no room to back out later. Have the Courts of Appeals, which you say, have... Um applied this rule since uh, 1980. Have they applied it only to pro se uh, filings? Or do they, uh, do they apply it to uh, The cases that I have seen apply it to pro se pleadings. I have not seen it applied jurisdictionally to uh, represented parties. Mr. Baker, let me just ask you, one of the tough things about your, your position, of course, is this contrast between the pro se litigant and the represented litigant. And your response in part is that, well, there are disciplinary uh, sanctions on the lawyer who doesn't uh, 
uh, who, who act who fails to sign and so forth. But does that is that really a complete response? Because isn't there still the danger in, uh, that a representative, a represented uh, appellant, might have some friend who, uh, without authority, went ahead and filed a notice of appeal without even the lawyer knowing about it? Well, if if he did, then it wouldn't have the lawyer's signature on it. It would have. Uh, someone else's signature on it. But I thought, I thought you were saying even if the lawyer had not signed it, it would not be jurisdictional. Um, even if the lawyer had, if, if, if I'm, he I'm, was I'm, a represented I'm, party, he filed pro se? Uh, no, a represent, I, I ha, my hypothetical is a represented party on whose behalf a typewritten notice of appeal is filed without the knowledge of either the lawyer who represents him or the man himself, or the uh, man or woman himself. It, it, that's not a jurisdictional defect, is it? Uh, I would say it was because it doesn't have a signature from the pro se party, uh, and it's not you, know, you haven't specified the, the, the party's intent to. Well, then there see. isn't this distinction between representative and non-representative parties. I, 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 I guess I have thought of it in terms of a represented party uh, where the lawyer is actually pursuing the appeal. Oh, but but it, am I correct then? I'm, I'm a, maybe I don't have the facts right in my mind. I, let's assume a represented party who has a lawyer. A, a paper is filed, pur- purports to be a notice of appeal on behalf of that person, and not signed by anybody. Okay. Is that a jurisdictional defect, or is it not? It may not be a jurisdictional defect, but it's obviously easily struck because it doesn't represent the intent of the party. If, it's, if, if it purports to be a pro se uh, a petition, uh, a notice of appeal, then it's jurisdictionally de- deficient. If it purports to be on uh, an attorney notice of appeal, then uh, it's fraud. Even though, in fact, it was not prepared by the attorney? Yeah. Yes. I'd like to t- take just a minute on the question of uh, the uh, uh, whether a typed name can constitute a signature. Uh, I think that's been uh, addressed at considerable length already. Uh, my first point, uh, and, and I apologize for raising it at this stage, is uh, there is a question whether this is uh, fairly covered by the question presented. The, the court drafted a question presented that presumes there's been a failure to sign here. Um, it did so after the uh, petitioner had filed a petition that made reference to some of the cases that addressed the question whether a signed uh, notice of appeal uh, could be uh, — whether a signing constituted uh, typing. Um, so there is a real question whether the Court, in framing this question, didn't exclude this issue or — You say it, we proceeded on the assumption that there was a failure to sign. Exactly. Uh, and, and therefore, either you've already decided this, which I suspect is not the appropriate uh, answer, or it's not part of the, uh, uh, the case uh, because there was no conflict in the circuits on that question. If I could turn uh, also to the, uh, the question of a, of a lawyer not signing, I, I think uh, uh, Mr. Sutton made the argument that an attorney um, if you were a represented party and you did not sign, it would not be jurisdictional. If you were a non-represented party and you did not sign, it would be jurisdictional, and that there would be some doubt about that possibility and raise the prospect, I think, of uh, people trying to game the system by rushing out and 
hiring lawyers or, or uh, having lawyers submit things that weren't signed. Uh, I think it's worth remembering this is not a difficult requirement to meet. Uh, signing the notice of appeal is an easy thing to do. It provides useful confirmation to the Court that uh, every party who is part of the notice of appeal actually has seen it, has willingly joined in it. Uh, and uh, so the likelihood that people will game this system in order to avoid signing the notice of appeal, uh, I think, is, is highly unlikely. Mr. Baker, is there anything in your view that's, quote, jurisdictional, other than the one thing we all agree is the 30 days is jurisdictional? And now you say the signing requirement, at least for a pro se litigant, is. Is there anything else that you would rank as jurisdictional so you would be disqualified as an appellant? This, this Court has, has tended to say uh, that Rule 3 is jurisdictional in, in general terms. Uh, certainly, I would say that Rule 3C and its provisions, which say that you must specify the party or parties taking the appeal, that's what the Torres case held, that uh, failure to specify is a jurisdictional fault. Uh, designation of the judgment appealed from, designation of the court appealed to. Uh, and as I said, most, uh, many courts had held that specify the party included a signature requirement as part of determining intent to appeal. But is anything other than naming a person as a party that couldn't be cured after the 30 days are up and some of the other things that you mentioned? Uh, uh, none of those uh, uh, things can be cured after the 30 days has, has run, and I believe that's established law. I'd like to. I know that the Tories establishes law, but I don't know that any of the others say that you can't cure a defect as long as something is clearly identifiable as a notice of appeal. What is it that says that errors in designating the the details are incurable? The, The. The Court in Smith against Barry and to a degree in Torres uh, suggested that uh, uh, the functional equivalent of a notice of appeal uh, is all that's required. But by functional equivalent, the, uh, uh, the Court has essentially treated the three elements that uh, must be in a notice of appeal as what must be conveyed in one form or another. It doesn't have to be in the form of a notice of appeal, but that information has got to be part of the notice of appeal, or if in the absence of one of those elements, uh, it's jurisdictionally. And the elements are who is appealing and what else? What he's appealing and where he's appealing to. Yeah, and all of that is in this notice, who is appealing what is appealing and who he's appealing to? I, I, would, I would argue that, uh, in fact, when the Advisory Committee, the only substantive revision of Rule 3C that's been made uh, was made in 1993 by the Advisory Committee. When they made that change, uh, there was none of this division into sub- separate subparagraphs of 3C. Uh, there was a requirement to do the three things, to specify the three things. The first was specify the parties. And what the uh, uh, advisory committee did was insert this reference to a signature by a pro se party directly after the requirement that uh, the party uh, taking the appeal be specified. Uh, And I think the only conclusion you can draw from that is they believed uh, that they were 
providing a gloss on how to specify the party or party taking the appeal. And yet there's not one word from the advisory committee that suggests this is, quote, jurisdictional. Uh, Torres had already done that most emphatically. And With respect to a party not being named at all. Yes. But, as I said, the, the, the entire effort by the uh, advisory committee was to insert, uh, was to, to clarify what it meant to specify the party so people wouldn't make mistakes in the future. If I could make one point in closing, it's uh, that I was struck as I was reading uh, the cases that we've been talking about uh, here, such as Torres, the Foman case from the 60s, uh, Houston against Lack, all of the cases that construe the, the rules of the court, uh, uh, the appellate courts, uh, uh, that almost none of them um, have survived in terms of their holding. Uh, almost every one has been modified by the advisory committee and the rules process. I, uh, given the number of problems we've turned up in this area, I think that it's inevitable that this issue is bound for the advisory committee one way or the other. Uh, and yet we, we still cite all those cases, and we cite them not for their particular holding, but for the way they analyze these problems. Uh, if they say, well, you know, the rules can be bent to achieve a certain aim, uh, then that's what they stand for. If they say, the rules should be read in as straightforward and lawyerly a way as one can and, uh, and, and take the consequences, then that's what those rules, those, those cases stand for. I would submit that if you take the latter course, the Sixth Circuit should be affirmed. Thank you. Mr. Baker, you served as an amicus for the Court in this case, and we thank you for your services. Mr. Sutton. Just you have four minutes remaining. A few uh, brief points. First of all, in defense of Dale Becker, the form he used is actually the form that's now attached to the Sixth Circuit rules. It's not outdated. It's attached to their current rules. Second, the notion that prison inmates should be consulting websites to get the forms doesn't seem to me plausible. Third, when it comes to the forms that Mr. Baker has relied upon, if you look at the, our yellow brief, there's a great irony here to his argument that this signature rule only applies to pro se appellants. Every one of the forms refers to signatures for attorneys. If you look at the one that's attached to the federal rules, that's at A1, it's clear the signature requirement's not for the pro se. It says the S and then attorney. Then you look at Mr. Baker's Becker's form, it's counsel for appellant. You then look at the next one, it has attorney. Every single one of them, if there's a signature requirement at all, it's referring, referring to attorneys. There's no indication that pro se litigants and pro se litigants alone are expected to sign these things in whatever manner. And every other point that Mr. Baker has raised, and there are many policy problems out there, they're all problems that show at most there's a signature requirement, not a signature jurisdictional requirement. Every single one of those issues can be cured and addressed after the 30 days. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sutton. The case is submitted.